0: 1110-993-WBT, Pete Callender Show. I'm Pete. 704-570-1110 and 1-800-WBT-1110. I'm going to get to this story about Mark Meadows uh, in a minute. First, just some cleanup on the previous topic on uh, Ukraine and the like. Uh, here is uh, Matthew says, Pete, I have compared Trump's quote-unquote praising of Putin To that of observing a card counter in a casino, a card counter or a mathematical genius may be very smart, but they're still cheating the house and breaking the rules. Recognizing the card counters intelligence doesn't mean what they're doing is right. Hope you appreciate this analogy, or at least you may be able to use it as a segue uh, to do a live read for Catawba Two Kings Casino. Uh, No, I already did it. But thank you, Matthew. You're a little late. Otherwise, I totally would have. Um, Let me see here. Another email. The nukes in Ukraine belonged to Russia. Ukraine didn't even have the launch codes. And talk about an expansionist authoritarianism. Seems to forget it was the West who organized the color revolution in 2014 that deposed Ukraine's Russia-friendly government. These fools are going to blow up the world In a whizzing contest for a country we let live behind the Iron Curtain for 50 years and never mattered. Insanity. Um, And then, oh, so, yeah, let me get to this last bit from this piece I was reading from earlier. Uh, It's called What Zelensky's Courage uh, Says About the West. It's in The Atlantic by a fellow named Tom McTague. And... He says, instead of Cold War heroes like Rocky, we have the cynical characters in Game of Thrones, Billions, and Succession channeling our new cynical reality. Our imaginative understanding of the world has changed. The West has killed off the idea of itself as good. I, I agree with that. I do. I, I agree with that. We no longer view ourselves as good. Everybody's an anti-hero. All of the the superhero movies and stuff, they're all like this anti-hero. He's, he's a bad guy, but he's trying to do some good stuff. You know, whatever. Like, does it even recognize a baddie anymore? Do you recognize who the baddies are, or is everything twisted in—in in, into, well, actually, we kind of stink too? Or has it concluded that countries such as Russia or China are no worse or better? This, in fact... Is the Trump view of the world largely shared on the far left, too? This is what McTague says. And that is incorrect. This guy, that is not correct. Trump's view was that America was better than those other countries. But but he recognized they are their own countries. They're going to do what they're going to do. We're going to do what we're going to do. It's in our national interest to do this, their national interest to do that. It's so amazing to me how people still don't understand a very simple thing about Trump, which was that he loved America, he loves America, he loves the country, and he loves the idea of America. I understood that. For all of my criticism of Donald Trump for different things over the years, I've never questioned that. But I guess if you're on the left, you're like, he's a Putin uh, puppet. And so, therefore he hates america right ipso facto perhaps this is why zelensky though is so inspiring western countries don't have this kind of leadership anymore this unembarrassed defiant belief in a cause i think a lot of trump voters would tell you no we actually had that for 4 years and you guys hated him <laughs> that's that's their read on the situation So many people in the West have given up on the fairy tale of their own superiority because they understand how badly the West has behaved over the decades, from wars for colonial control to the war on terror. Yet perhaps the other reason Zelensky is so inspiring is that suddenly we could see that he's right. Vladimir Putin is a monster whose cause is unjust and immoral. In standing up to him, Ukraine is articulating a certain idea of itself that is righteous and dignified and heroic. Virtues we long ago dismissed as old-fashioned. So who's this we? He is writing for The Atlantic, okay? So he's probably left of center. How tragic it is that Zelensky's idea has to be attacked for us to be reminded of ours. Which then leads me to this story. This is at newsbusters.org. But there are Uh, they're quoting heavily from the Washington Free Beacon, which is a national treasure, by the way. Chuck Ross did a Saturday story, or did a story uh, about a Saturday arrest, I should say, of a freelance reporter with Voice of America, VOA. Voice of America. So do you remember VOA? Do you remember when, um, what was it, the guy that got put in charge of VOA by Trump? Michael Pack was his name. And he warned that the VOA needed to be reformed, that um, it had become too partisan, um, and that had to be removed from its reporting. And he also pointed out that the Voice of America broadcasting was a great place for foreign countries to put spies into the U.S. government. And the media and the Democrats, but I repeat myself, they went nuts on this guy. Oh, there's that stupid Trump guy. There he is. Oh, yeah. Everybody's a spy. Blah, blah, blah. Okay, so a guy got arrested over the weekend for spying. (laughs) He was a freelancer for VOA. Uh-huh. Pablo Gonzalez. Arrested on suspicion of spying. You'll never guess who for or for whom. Russia. Exactly. Exactly spying for Russia at the Poland-Ukraine border. Poland's internal security agency said Friday that Gonzalez was, quote, conducting his business for Russia while taking advantage of his journalist status. The counterintelligence agency said Gonzalez had collected information for Russia's spy service during his recent stay in Poland, and he planned to continue his activities in war-torn Ukraine. He is identified as a cameraman for a February 4th Voice of America story, from uh, Dnipro, a city in eastern Ukraine, he was detained two days after the VOA report and accused of reporting from military-controlled areas without accreditation. He was released hours after his initial re- arrest. So, uh, if you're keeping track of a list of all the things that Trump and his administration got correct, the VOA having spies in it—that was—you can add that one to your list. There All right, News Talk 1110-993-WBT, the Pete Callender Show. No, you're not mistaken. It's not the beginning. You didn't miss a segment or something like that. Did did I just lose track of time? No, no, no. It's all right. Uh, Not the beginning of the show. We already did one segment. Although, to be fair, the first segment did kind of feel like it belonged in the previous hour. So that's kind of my fault. All right. Welcome to the program, 704 1-800-WBT-1110. By the way, get the podcasts at WBT.com. And while you're there, check out the details for the 100th anniversary celebration that we're putting on, sponsored by, presented by, the Center for TMJ and Sleep Apnea. We thank them for their support. Uh, and uh, you can get the details and the tickets at WBT.com. Uh, it's the largest group of WBT alumni ever gathered together for one event, and we're going to be inducting John Stokes, Jim Zoki, and Bob Lacey into the uh, WBT Hall of Fame. And it's on Saturday, April 9th at 7.30, Halton Theater at CPCC. We'd love to have you there. And uh, I'm going to be there. It's going to be a great time. It's going to be a lot of fun. So, uh, yeah, there's that, WBT.com. All right, finally, I never thought I would see this day, but finally— We've got media and Democrats, but I repeat myself, think that they have found vote fraud because it's Mark Meadows. Okay, yeah, all right, I kind of led you, yeah. So it's not that they have found vote fraud. They just think Mark Meadows, I guess, is the only person to commit the fraud. Yeah, so there's a guy named Charles Bethea, 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 Beth. I don't know how he pronounces it. Anyway, he writes for The New Yorker, I think. He may be on freelance, though. Um, Not sure if he's a Russian spy. I guess I should just kind of throw that out there, just given the previous story we covered. But he went and tracked down the address where Meadows had registered to vote after uh, after he gave up his congressional run and went to be chief of staff or whatever. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. It was after that. So the timeline on this is very, very tight because, well, I'll just read read along. So Meadows grew up in Florida, he moved to North Carolina back in the 80s. He opened up a sandwich shop in Highlands, North Carolina, out in western North Carolina. He then sold that, started a real estate company, and uh, he actually, apparently, according to the reporter, he showed a few vacation properties to my parents back in the 90s. So this guy's parents were shown around the mountains by Meadows. All right, so then he became active in local politics. He ran for Congress in 2012. Coincidentally, the very year that I arrived in Asheville, I mean, coincidence that I got there and then Meadows, you know, rise in political fame happened right at the same time. Yes, absolutely coincidental. But uh, we we both landed there at the same time. And uh, he then resigns the seat in March 2020 to become Trump's chief of staff. Earlier that month, March 2020, he sold his house in a place called Sapphire. He sold the house. And as the election, now they also had a condo, I think, or a townhome or something up in uh, D.C. or Virginia near Washington, D.C. But he hadn't bought a new house as the election approached. On September 19th, about three weeks before the voter registration deadline for the general election, Meadows filed his paperwork. And on the line where it asks for the residential address, where you physically live, the form says, Meadows wrote down the address of a 14-foot by 62-foot mobile home in Scaly Mountain. He listed his move-in date for that address to be the following day. So there are two components here. One is the address, and one is the move-in date. Meadows does not own the property. Meadows never has owned that property. It's not clear that he's ever spent a single night there either. He did not respond to a request for comment on the story. The previous owner who asked that we not use her name, she now lives in Florida. I don't understand this this deal either. This Florida to Western North Carolina pipeline that has been established, I don't understand it. I did not understand it when I lived out there. And, you know, nothing against Floridians, but, like, find another place besides Western North Carolina. You're terrible at driving in the mountains. I just feel like I need to say that. Okay. Well, Florida's very flat. And I don't understand, like, you you got Georgia that's right there. Why not just, just, it's a little bit closer, just go right to Georgia, just, and then just stop. Okay. So, the woman who owned the place lives in Florida, and she said that was her summer home up in the mountains. When I called her up the other day, she seemed surprised to learn that the residence was listed on the Meadows' forms. Macon County, by the way, North Carolina, she said she only rented it out twice, though, ever. The first renter was Debbie Meadows, Mark Meadows, wife. The second renter was a guy named Ken Abele or Abele, Abil, Abele, Abele, I think is how he pronounced that. Who actually ended up buying the mobile home in August of the following year? Now, I've seen the picture of this thing. I can't tell if it's a mobile home. It does not appear to me to be a mobile home. But I would really like to encourage the left to keep mocking the house. I think this is a fantastic strategy for me, actually. You just keep, yeah, just keep making fun of that house because it's got like a rusted tin roof. It's got like the particle board plywood kind of stuff and keep making all these comments. Like, I don't think a chief of staff would be slumming it like that. Like you just keep doing that. I think that's a winning message. This election cycle mock the housing of like a very sizable portion of the population in this state. Because like, honestly, like if you've ever lived up in the mountains, You see a lot of houses. There are a lot of houses like that. Lots of them. So she only rented this place out twice. Once was to Debbie Meadows. She doesn't know if Mark Meadows ever stayed a single night there, but they had rented it out for like two months. So I'm thinking chances are pretty good he probably dropped in. But this is what people do also. They rent these cabins up in the mountains, and it's more of a primitive experience. That's the point. Now, I don't know why he signed that address on his registration card. We'll get into that in a minute. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Pete Callaner here, 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110. This writer for The New Yorker, newyorker.com, Charles Bethea, went and tracked down Mark Meadows' old house uh, that he registered to vote in in September 2020. Um, He listed his move-in date for this address as September 20th, but the day that he filed the papers uh, was the day before. So that's an important component. I'll circle back to that like Jen Psaki does. I'll, I'll get back to that. But the first part is this mobile home that the former owner said she only rented it out twice ever. And one time it was to Debbie Meadows. But Debbie Meadows had rented it for like a month or two or something. Um, but she couldn't remember. She said maybe she only spent like one or two nights there. That's what she said. That Debbie Meadows rented it for like a month or two, but she only spent like a day or two there. And the kids, uh, the Meadows kids uh, spent some time there. But she's not aware of Mark Meadows being there. But it also wasn't their their residential address because the second renter that she Rented it to a guy by the name of Ken Abile or Abiel. He bought the mobile home in August of 2021, the following year. Okay, so this... Now, did Meadows potentially commit vote fraud by listing this mountain address on his registration form? It is a federal crime to provide false information to register to vote in a federal election. So the reporter goes and asks the uh, director of the Macon County Board of Elections, Melanie Thibault. Thibault? Thibault? I think is how she pronounces that. Anyway, she says that their registrations had arrived by mail and were entered into the system and that a voter registration card was sent to a P.O. box they provided as their mailing address. Do you follow that? This is it's one of the things people never really, I think, kind of comprehend until you... Like, like when you visualize or you go through this process yourself, but when you visualize how this process actually works, you realize how ripe the system is for fraud, right? The registrations arrive by mail. They get entered into the system, clickety-clackety-click, and then a voter registration card gets mailed back to the voter, and it got sent, in this case, to a P.O. box, If the card makes it to the voter and is not sent back as undeliverable by the postal service, then the voter goes into the system as a good voter. That's all it takes. You send in a form, they enter it into the computer, they send you back a card and if it hits the address and so it doesn't ever come back to them, they assume it's all good. Your lack of response your lack of response is taken as proof that you exist and you live at that place where you claim you live. And as this story clearly alludes to, that might not necessarily be true. One of the authors of North Carolina's voter challenge statute is a guy named Jerry Cohen. He wrote it during his time as a staff attorney for the state general assembly. He's now on the Wake County board of elections. He's a Democrat, actually was a communist uh, at UNC a long time ago. Anyway, Uh, He teaches public policy at Duke. Cohen told me that legally speaking, you can have more than one residence, but only one domicile. And that your voter registration must be linked to the domicile. For something to qualify as a domicile, he said it's got to be a, quote, place of abode where you have spent at least one night and where you intend to remain indefinitely or at least without a present intent to establish a domicile at some other place. Why would Meadows risk committing vote fraud by listing as his domicile the address of a mobile home where he seems never to have slept? At the time, this was September, there was speculation he might run for the Senate seat that the North Carolina Republican Richard Burr is vacating. And so it may have struck him as important politically to keep voting in the state. Now, he he has some land in Transylvania County, which you have to say it like that, by the way. Transylvania County that's north carolina so it's out west and so um he had some land there but he can't register to vote there they're undeveloped um so the mountain mobile home scaly mountain mobile home owned by somebody who lived in another state which just sat down the road from some of his friends and so this is the this is the speculation that this reporter is is spinning out for us that Meadows' friend lives down the street and And I say down the street. It's a dirt path, you know, windy road. And it's a, you know, run-down-looking cabin. Now, the second part of this Jerry Cohen addresses about the date of the form versus when he said he was going to live there. Another problem is that you can't claim to live somewhere where you haven't moved to yet. And Meadows listed his move-in date as the day after he signed and dated the form. In theory... This could, which is doing a lot of heavy lifting in this sentence, could invalidate the registration, Cohen said. But it actually happens fairly often. A lot of voters mix up their dates on registration forms or they predate a planned relocation. And then local officials usually just look past it. But if you think that's going to happen to Mark Meadows, you've got another thing coming. That elections board... I am certain is going to, and there are going to be challenges and people are going to want to, they're already doing it. You can see them on Twitter. The left is getting riled up. They're like, we're going to demand uh, investigations. We need to prosecute this stuff. So we have finally found a vote fraud investigation that the left is okay to pursue. And an acknowledgement, apparently, that vote fraud does exist. Like the M&M's guys in that Christmas commercial. This Talk 1110 and 99.3 WBT. Pete Callaner here. seven zero four five seven zero eleven ten 1110 and 1-800-WBT-1110. Remember, the email is pete at PeteCallanershow.com. Okay, let's go over to the phones, and this is Zion. Welcome, Zion. How are you? What's going on?
1: Hey, how you doing, guys? Hey, I'm good. What's up? Yeah, I wanted to find out around kitchen tables of, um, you know, uh, white households in America and anything racially discussed
0: well as the appointed spokesperson for all white people
1: well, I know you're not I know you're not I mean you don't I mean this is I'm, I'm just asking curious man there's no it's no agitation
0: with it all right so no right so well what is it you're trying to figure out what is the like get to the it's, get to the premise because rather than ask me in inter like the like in an interrogation style just make whatever the assertion oh, no. is they that... mean that okay,
1: yeah, uh, so like are there questions asked about why is there affirmative action and what was the cause of affirmative action or anything like that, so those things can be explained because I think uh, what I'm getting to is this is that yes. I don't think that you would probably need the uh what what is it called the racial critical theory or something like that, that they
0: yeah, yeah, yeah
1: Crit- yeah. If, 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 Things like that were
0: to occur, right? So, is it your belief or understanding that white people don't discuss racial, uh, or or you know, racism and slavery and history and that stuff?
1: Yeah, it's, it's an assumption of mine. Okay. Can
0: uh, so would it surprise you? So, all right. How much do you think the average American citizen should be required to know about? American history in general, not anything specific, white, black, or anything like that. Just sort of like in general. Do you think that Americans have a good grasp of
1: our history? Um, as it's put now, yeah, uh, probably not.
0: Okay, and is that because you think white people don't know black history, or do you think it is all people don't no, know I just, all I, history?
1: I, I just no, I just think. Because the way it's taught in our schools. Okay, right. So so
0: yeah. So right. So you and I agree there is sort of a baseline of bad, right? <laughs> it's like a baseline of not enough history, civics, that kind of thing. And that's all across the board. So the question now becomes is how much are we really anticipating people to know all there is to know about, say, World War II or the Revolution or all the intricacies of slavery? affirmative action civil rights like there are gaps in the body politic knowledge on these things because there are gaps in the knowledge on all things and i'm at some point like are we supposed to all be experts in one narrow piece of subject matter as it relates to race relations because i can tell you um white people that i know we talk about affirmative action racial politics and you know what? I also talk about that stuff with black people too.
1: Okay, so um, yeah, I get that. I, I, I didn't know. I, you know, I was like on a percentage. I just thought no idea because when 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 if you talk about something like reparations, yeah, it seems like um, my, they just seems like that as that should be the farthest thing away of a discussion. So why why would you even discuss it?
0: It's a, usually it usually comes up as something that was in the news, you know, or a kid at school, you know, kid comes home from school and says, oh, you know, this was on, you know, the agenda for today and, you know, whatever. Some or classmate mentioned it, you know, stuff like that. That's Got usually, you. I mean, that's usually how it probably comes up in most
1: households. Right. Got you. Got you.
0: Yeah. So it's just yeah. it, it's no, something no, that pops in the news and someone hears something or I mean, with the critical race theory stuff, I mean, that stuff's gotten pushed into classrooms and that has forced a lot of the, the conversations. But the problem is is that it's forcing conversations through a particular what's called pedagogy, which is a method of teaching. And that method of teaching is Marxist. And that's the problem. I don't, there isn't anybody that I've encountered on the right that says, don't talk about slavery. They don't say that. They don't, they don't want a whitewashed history of America to be so what taught. Are, what are they saying then? I mean, what, they don't want they the Marxism. It? They don't want critical race theory because they are pitting people against each other. I have no quarrel with you, Zion, based on anything, any immutable characteristic. If you're black, if you're Hispanic, if you're white, it doesn't matter to me. That does not matter to me, nor should it. Now, I understand that it matters in one sense, but... I'm not going to judge you or prejudge you based on the color of your skin. I'm a Gen Xer. That's what I was raised to believe. United Colors of Benetton. You know, that was my generation. Now that's all racist. Now I'm being told I'm supposed to segment people, dare I call it, segregate them into different groups based on immutable characteristics. You can't do anything about your race or your ethnicity or anything. You can't change that. So why would I segregate you away from everybody else? based on something you can't change, and then start attaching good and bad types of adjectives to those different groups. That's a very dangerous path. That's all.
1: Okay, but let me ask you something. Is is there any truth in any of that? You're you're, you're talking about a philosophy when you say it's Marxist, right?
0: Yes. Well, I mean, the the people who create it it all, it, it comes from... Uh, a guy by the name of Antonio Gramsci. He was a, what's called the neo-Marxist, and he was the one who said you got to march through the institutions. Marx focused too much on economics. Gramsci said it's got to go through the institutions like media, art, um, and um, uh, and the schools. And so that launched. And, and so the critical theory comes out of that school, right? That that philosophy. So you're exactly right. It comes out of that philosophy. Then you get the. Uh, critical uh you get the critical legal studies the crits as they were called at harvard uh, Derek, uh bell and uh, i'm trying to remember the woman's name kimberly crenshaw i believe and they create yeah. then the legal studies and they, taking that same sort of model applying it into the legal framework then it moves into the education schools and that's where we are now and it's called critical race theory i think it's they, they got some other acronyms for it but it is all of that same lineage yes
1: Okay. Okay. Well, they, the, the way the way the way the way they got it going is that they don't like it because they, they they said okay, white people are bad, and and so on and so forth. Yeah,
0: that that white people are inherently oppressors. I inherently I find that to be oppressive. objectionable. I wouldn't. I would not suffer if if they said that about it. I would not suffer fools for saying the same about any other class. Right. Okay. So yeah, yeah no, I I don't I don't believe in ascribing those types of characteristics to entire groups of people based on the color of their skin. Zion, I appreciate the call. Good chat. Brett Winterbill coming up next. I'll see you tomorrow. Don't break anything while I'm gone.